passage tonight that I never grow weary of. <clears throat> it is always a precious and deep fountain at which to drink. And uh, I do pray that you will find it an encouraging return to this passage. We've looked at it before. And uh, I think as long as I have breath, we will, we will come back to it from time to time because of its vital importance to us and to the church at large. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Brethren, let us hear what the Spirit is saying to His church. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Amen. I do pray the Lord add His blessing to the reading of this precious and infallible testimony. <clears throat> As the aged Apostle Paul neared the end of his course, he instructed Timothy, his beloved son in the faith, in the day-to-day -day issues of church life. Apparently, there were problems in the church at Ephesus. There are so many cautions, so many warnings, so many corrections that Paul writes here. It is it's quite obvious that in some way, the church at Ephesus was having troubles. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation ultimately rebuked the church of Ephesus. It looked wonderful on the outside, but it left its first love. And brethren, apparently they were, they were not heedful to the warnings that the head of the church gave to it. And today, if you read the books and the commentaries, you will know that we cannot find where the church of Ephesus was. So it is most important that as Paul gave such clear instruction to this church, it was founded by Paul. Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesians. Timothy was one of its great bishops, one of the great elders of the church at Ephesus, and then addressed in the book of Revelation. Now it's gone. Brethren, what blessings were heaped upon that gathering of saints, and yet they're gone. May we heed what they did not. Amen. May we hear the voice of our Master in what He's saying. <clears throat> Paul clearly wanted to visit Ephesus in order to participate with Timothy in the correction of the problems. Paul understood God's sovereign, eternal purpose for the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And writing earlier in his epistle to the Ephesians, he said, Unto Him, that is God, be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world, without end. Amen. Now, brother, that bears repeating. Filled with the Spirit of God, Paul says, Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. And he 
he himself seals it. Amen. Verily. Truth. So be it. Well, the apostle knew that God's glory is bound up in this institution of redeemed sinners called the church. Does that not stretch imagination? That the eternal God of ineffable majesty, highest glory, that in, in, in some way His eternal glory is bound up with this gathering of, of collection of, and collection of vessels of dust. How is that possible? And yet it is the mystery of godliness. Yet it is God's eternal purpose. God's glory is bound up in this institution of redeemed sinners. Therefore, for the glory of God and of Jesus Christ, the saints at Ephesus needed instruction in how to behave themselves as God's glorious house. Paul's message is that the church must proclaim and protect the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they are God's house. This is the repository of God's glorious treasure, the gospel. The church must walk worthily of the call with which she has been called by living in holiness and purity. That reaches from the elders to the members. There are no exceptions. The proclamation of the gospel, which is the power of God into salvation, is God's declaration of love, grace, mercy, and redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is God's way of calling and saving the elect. The power of God unto salvation, unto all them that believe, the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. Who's supposed to protect that gospel? The church. The protection of the gospel preserves the church and keeps it healthy. This is, of course, why Satan does all he can to infect it and corrupt it. And to, he doesn't want it completely wiped out. He knows that's never going to happen. But in every place that he can poison and confuse and dim its glory, he will. He will try. The hosts of hell will do so. And even, even if they were not here, our fallen flesh tends to downgrade, not upgrade. The gospel must be kept pure. We see the importance of this as Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 4 of this epistle, verse 16. Take heed unto thyself. Warning, Timothy, wake up. Take heed to yourself. Watch it. And unto the doctrine. Thyself and the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself 
and them that hear thee. Now how important is that? The maintenance of the gospel. How important is that? Paul says, in doing so, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Paul's most stringent rebuke in the entire New Testament falls upon those who pervert the gospel. He loved the churches in Galatia. And yet he said, Oh, foolish Galatians! Who hath bewitched you? He said, I, I can't believe my ears. I can't believe my eyes. It is as if someone had cast a spell upon you. What's happened? If anyone comes bringing a gospel other than the one I preach to you, if an angel materializes in your very presence and says something different than the gospel I founded those churches on, God's curse be upon them. Is it important? Take heed unto thyself, Timothy. Take heed unto thyself, elders of the church, elders in Ephesus and in Philippi and in Colossae, and elders in Pensacola. Take heed. And unto the doctrine, continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Well, after giving the guidance that he does in chapters 1 through 3 regarding uh, numerous important issues such as apostolic doctrine, prayer, requirements of elders and deacons, Paul makes this observation. It is the first verse of the text we read this evening. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. We want to hear, we want to hear Paul's heart. We want to hear the voice of the head of the church. <clears throat> the Lord Jesus. Paul's desire was to visit Timothy. And it was something that he wanted to do soon. I'm writing unto you, hoping, hoping to come to you quickly, shortly. But if I tarry long, he says. Apparently he says this because he, for whatever reason, knew that something was looming before him that might delay him. Or maybe just because he was always in danger. He may have simply been saying, given the things that happened to me over and over, something might delay me. I might be taken and beaten again. I might be arrested. But whatever it was, he said, if, if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. He knew there was the possibility they might be delayed, and he wanted to make certain that Timothy understood how God's people ought to conduct themselves 
as members of God's holy household. I want to come to, to see you. I want to come and participate in straightening out these issues. But if I don't make it, if something holds me up, I'm writing this so you still get the instruction. He was consumed with the salvation of God's beloved children. He wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I endure all things for their sake. Brother, when you read the list of the things that Paul endured, this is an extraordinary statement. Beaten, stoned, left for dead. Brethren, the flogging in those days was measured to the number of stripes that they thought they could give a man before it killed him. They'd bring men right to the point of dying, and sometimes they did. He was constantly in fear of his life. He says, I endure all things for the elect's sake. The souls of men are so precious to me that I will take whatever needs to come to bring them that precious treasure of the gospel that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And that glory is ultimately in the church. A gathering of sinners whose hearts have been made new, renewed by the power of the Holy Ghost, and drawn to the worship of the Most High. But what burned in Paul's heart was more than the salvation of the elect. We're not diminishing it. There was more. He wanted them to realize that as God's beloved, as God's elect, they are His house. They are His church. The pillar and the ground of God's saving truth. The church is the guardian, the defender of God's glorious gospel. The world, the flesh, and the devil were working overtime then and they are now to corrupt the gospel. Now, brethren, it is happening today. The very doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ is once again a controversy. You'd think that so many years after these struggles have taken place, how in the world could this be an issue again? Because, brethren, until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, the powers of darkness and the doctrines of devils will assail the church of Jesus Christ. And we are the pillar and ground of the truth. And every local assembly of Jesus Christ, can and must say that. The fact is, or, the, or the, the sad question is, do they realize it? Do you realize that? This is what Paul is anxious about. Not in a sinful way. But this is what's driving his heart. 
Timothy, if I don't make it there, God's people need to know they're the pillar and the ground of the truth. And they're to live a particular way. The gospel must be protected and kept pure so that God receives His glory. Where is it? In the church by Jesus Christ. So that God's elect might be saved. How will they be saved without a preacher? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word. We must preserve the word. Or they will not hear. You say, well now, wait a minute. We're the people that believe God's sovereign, right? He's just going to get the elect. He's going to save them, right? It's going to happen no matter what. Well, brethren, that is true. But in that glorious purpose that God has ordained, He's made us responsible agents for bearing His truth. His elect are saved with His glorious gospel. Go ye therefore and put your feet up and just hope the elect are going to be saved? No! Make disciples! Preach the gospel! Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Brethren, we're called to preserve, to protect this precious treasure. The gospel must be protected and kept pure so that the lives of God's people might reflect the saving power of that gospel to a lost and dying world. Put another way, Paul knew that the proper order of the church reflects the saving power of the gospel. Our transformed earthly lives speak of His heavenly power. The lives of the saved testify to the power and character of the Savior. Properly understood, therefore, verses 14 through 16 in chapter 3 of this first epistle of Timothy are the very heart of the pastoral epistles. The church is the pillar and the ground of the truth, the saving truth of Almighty God. It has been entrusted to us and we are not only to preserve it, but to live in accord with it. Bringing testimony and glory of our God. We're bringing testimony of our God and glory to Him. So, we want to consider these things in our remaining time this evening. The necessary conduct in God's house. The necessary conduct in God's house. We want to consider the identity of God's house. And if we make it through those, we might consider the purpose of the house of God, God's house. It's likely that we'll do another message on that. But we want to take up first the necessary conduct in God's house. <clears throat> Notice that Paul says in 
verse 15. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. Now, Paul also tells Timothy that he's to be an example to the flock. So when he tells him how he ought to behave, he's talking about him as an elder being an example for how the assembly is to behave. The elders of the church are not a, a, a separate species of, of human being or Christian. They are simply those who function within the body of Christ in the administration of the Word of God. They're made of the same thing as everyone else. They clearly have the same foibles, the same imperfections, the same limitations, the same trials, the same persecutions, the same challenges, the same temptations as all of God's people. Therefore, they are to walk circumspectly as those who have been approved of God and appointed by God to lead His flock, not as demigods, but as those who, having been instructed and are walking in the faith, may impart to those around them what God expects in His house. The word ought is very, very important. Ought indicates duty or correctness in English. However, in the Greek, this word expresses compulsion, necessity, inevitability. It is most often translated must, and it points to the compulsion of duty. So in this context, it means it is necessary. So we could read it this way then, that thou mayest know what is necessary, or how it is necessary to behave thyself in the house of God. Paul uses this strong word to make us see that his instruction is a mandate. To defend the gospel truth in its purity and to live in harmony with it is absolutely essential. Why? Because we are God's house. This is his whole argument. Because you are God's house. We must maintain the integrity of God's gospel and our lives as His people because we are His household. This is not optional. And brethren, when grace slowly trickles down into the depths of your consciousness as an excuse for living like the world, as a helper to your wickedness, as something somehow that dulls you to your service to God, you have misunderstood grace. We do not want to be corrupters of grace. 
as is so easily done. Well, we want to consider this in Paul's words. He says, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. The first thing this postulates is our natural ignorance. Our natural ignorance. And we don't like being told, you're ignorant. But the very fact that we have teachers speaks that we are. If we knew everything, we would need a teacher. We're ignorant. And we need to be instructed. Not easy to admit that, is it? But the first thing that must capture our attention here is how. How to behave ourselves in order, in the order of the church. It does not come naturally to us. We must be instructed. Now, as the regenerate people, or I, I should at least say, it does not come naturally to our flesh. It certainly comes naturally to what we are in union with Christ. But that's why we have this constant struggle. The flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that we cannot do what we would. <clears throat> As the regenerate people of God, we must understand the necessary requirements of living as God's holy elect. As Paul writes in his Ephesian epistle, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, I implore you, I urge you, I exhort you, that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Live like who you are. Chapter 4, verse 1 of the Ephesian epistle. To the Colossians, he says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with all the knowledge of his will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Unto what end? that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet, made us fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He says, I'm praying for you that you live like Christians. That you walk like those who've been saved. Like those who have been delivered from the power of Satan. Delivered from the rulership of your flesh. He's not saying, now I expect you to be absolutely and precisely flawless. In everything that you do. This is what we aim for. This is what our hearts desire. This is what the standard is. But he says, by trusting Christ, walk as believers. Walk worthily. You have a high calling. Do you know who you are? You're God's house. You're where God lives. Does anybody recognize that house? Do they go by and is it, is it like an old abandoned shack? Or is it like the castle of the king? To the Thessalonians, Paul wrote, As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, 
that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. You get the drift? We need to be called to live like what we are. He said it to the Thessalonians. He said it to the Colossians. He said it to the Ephesians. He's writing to Timothy the same thing. Who are you? You're God's children. You're God's house. Live that way. I'm praying for you. That you'll be illuminated. That the Spirit will fill you. And that you'll come to understand who you are. And how to walk as who you are. Because that gives the Father glory. All the glory is to Him. In the church. By Christ Jesus. Well, secondly, we want to consider our necessary conduct. After considering our ignorance and the fact that we do need to be instructed in who we are and how to walk, then we want to consider our necessary conduct. Clearly driving Paul's statement is his concern that the lives of those in the church of the Lord Jesus reflect His saving grace. Brethren, this is what we want the world to see. We're not perfect people, so we're not saying to them, look, we're perfect. But we're also not saying, look, I live like you. The difference, I'm going to heaven, you're not. Yeah, I mean, you know, we watch the same things, we look the same way, we act the same way, but I'm going to heaven and you're not. This is not what our lives are to say. Our lives are to say, the God of heaven and earth has had mercy on a sinner like me. And He's transformed me by His grace and His love. And I want you to know Him too. Because if He can save someone like me, He can save someone like you. Paul is saying in these words, this is a necessity. The ought says necessity. Our words about Christ mean nothing if our lives are not in harmony with Him. It is absolutely crucial for those who profess to be God's children to know how to behave as God's people. Timothy, that's what Paul's saying. Well, what is vital for us to lay hold of is that Paul's choice of words mandates the behavior set forth in the first three chapters. Go and read chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Hear what he calls us to. And this is what we're to walk in. Not only that, warning comes in chapter 4. People are going to fall away. They're not going to listen to good sound doctrine. And brethren, we see it. I've lived long enough now to see this is so. And it's true in every generation. Some of you may know the heartache, the agony of seeing those who've made fair professions. And now, like the proverbial dogs, have gone back to their vomit. Brethren, it's real. The Word of God is His infallible testimony. Don't be haughty. Remember what Paul says in Romans. Look, God broke off the branches of the original tree. And He grafted you in. He can break you off too. You stand by grace. Walk in it. Paul wants Timothy to know that God's people must walk in God's ways. By this legalism, preacher. I mean, you keep talking about all the stuff I'm supposed to do, supposed to do, supposed to do. Well, in the Old Testament about doing, in the New Testament about believing. 
No, it's always been about believing and doing. Believing and doing. Always. Believing and doing. you have any questions about that, take your Strong's Concordance or your Young's Analytical, whichever one you use, and look at the word do in the New Testament. Follow it out. Hear it from the lips of Christ. Hear it from the lips of the apostles. Are we doing to save ourselves? No. Are we doing to keep ourselves saved? No. We're doing because we've been transformed by the glorious grace of Jesus Christ. God saves sinners by the power of the gospel and He adds them to His churches. We've lost that in our day. The whole idea is just me, me, me. My salvation. My devotions. My quiet time. Me. Just me. And if it's convenient, I'll go and be with them. Brother, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Now, by the way, let, let me say something. I, I've been criticized, and rightfully so, by perhaps not using guarded language. Let me at least put a footnote to what I'm saying. I am not mocking the importance of individual piety. I'm not mocking the joy in the heart of the individual when he thinks of God's love for him and the glories and the important things that come out of our times in prayer and our personal, individual studies. These things are vital. What I'm saying is that that's been made the, 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 the primary focus the individual. And in the scriptures, the focus is the bride of Christ, the church. The health of the church, of course, is quite obviously bound up in our having those times of prayer. You must pray. Get in your closet or wherever you pray. Walk and pray. Wherever you pray, pray. Know your God. Study the scriptures. Fill your heart and mind with the word of God. Hide his word in his heart that you might not sin against him. But remember, he's added you to his body so that the body will be healthy. So it's not an either or. It's a both and. And they must work together. I've given you an impression otherwise. I hope that is a clear correction. The church, the redeemed people of God, must reflect the saving grace of God by the order of their lives, beginning in the corporate worship of the church. There's an order here. Apparently, Ephesus was getting out of order. He says, look, this is what your elders are supposed to be. This is what your deacons are supposed to be. This is what the doctrine is supposed to be. Timothy, this is how you're supposed to be. And this is how God's people are supposed to be. Because God gets glory in the church. You are His house. Well, that brings us to the identity of God's house. The identity of God's house 
If I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Paul reveals the importance of, of all of this by pointing out, as I have said repeatedly, that the saints are the holy habitation of God. God's people are the house of God. Now, the word house here can be translated and understood two ways. And the saints throughout the history of the church have understood this two ways. I'll set both of them before you. They're both true. The word translated house can mean either house or household. It can mean the place where God lives or the people who live with God as his household. So if if we take it to mean house, if house is the proper understanding, the place where God lives, then the reference is obviously to God's people as the dwelling place of God. How remarkable. How remarkable that God's people are his temple. When you think, and think with me, when you think of what God could have built, think of the, the, the earthly palaces. Think of the, the buildings that have been covered on the inside and the outside with gold and, and rich jewels and, and all of the extraordinary treasures of the earth. When we think of the edifice God could have built, what are His building materials for His house? You and me, as living stones. And do you do you get a hold of that? We are His living stones. God dwells here. He doesn't live in these four walls. He lives in these people. This is His glorious temple, and this is where He gets His glory. I mean, now, when you look at me, and you spend much time with me, you think, Phew. the Lord sure could have found some better stones to build with, couldn't he? But this is his choice. Not many wise, not many noble. Brethren, does this not humble us? If we want to be where God is, we have to be where he lives, right? <laughs> the amazing thing is here. This is where he lives. He dwells in his people. And Paul says this. He rebukes the Corinthians. And he uses this, this kind of approach over and over again. He says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God? You Corinthians, you're so out of order. Look at you. <laughs> you're all divided up. Oh, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. You've divided yourselves up. You're destroying the unity of Christ. You're suing each other. You're, you're showing up at the Lord's table and eating all the food and getting drunk. Not only that, there's immorality among you. There is impurity there. Some of it's so hideous that even the pagans don't do this. You're out of order. Don't you know who you are? He says, you're the temple of God. You're God's house. 
The Spirit of God dwells in you. Don't you know that? Brethren, do we know that? If any man defiled the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For years that's been applied to things like, you know, if you sneak off around the back of the barn and smoke, God's going to get you. Now it is true, we need to take care of these individual temples, but he's talking about, don't you collectively know that you're the temple and you're not to defile the body, the gathering. If any man defile the temple, him shall God destroy. Why? Hear the word of God. For the temple of God is holy which temple ye are. While it is true that the Holy Spirit dwells in every individual believer, it must be remembered that individual members are living stones built up into the spiritual house. He takes you and He takes me and He jointly fits us together. And it's in that fitting that the the corners start getting knocked off. Those things that we don't like about each other that surface all begin to come to the surface. And He compacts us together and feeds us Himself where His living stones all join together. And He says, I'm going to get glory right there. Brethren, I tell you, there are times when I'm, I'm awestruck by this. I should be awestruck every time. It's just in the dullness of my flesh. It doesn't always grip me like it has this afternoon. You are built up a spiritual house. In other words, we are individuals put together into a community, a temple of the living God. Paul's know ye not, do ye not know statements are important. He's making a point that is foundational truth. Something that the Corinthians should know something that you and I should know, something that our lives ought to be built on. It's the basic presupposition of the Christian walk with Christ. We have been regenerated by His Spirit and we're in union with Him. And He takes these vessels of dust, cleanses them, and builds His house with them. Paul's thinking here is, surely you know this, Don't you know this? Have you forgotten who you are? O Corinthians, O ye of Mount Zion, do we remember this? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, Paul writes, What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. You're His house. You're the place where He lives. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That is covenant language. We are God's covenant people by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he says, there's absolutely no fellowship between the living God and His temple and idols. We need a clean house, brethren. Jesus chapter 2, verse 19, he says, 
Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Is that not glorious? Our hearts are to overflow with this. What's God doing? Is he making a new universe somewhere? Is he making some spectacular building of great stones and ivory and gold and, and, and all of the gems of the earth? No. He's taken these weak vessels of dust, cleansed them by the blood of his Holy Son, covenanted together with them, and is building them together. We're his house. Built upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. That's why it matters what you say. That's why it matters what you wear. That's why it matters how you think. That's why it matters what you refrain from or what you engage in. Because you're God's house. We could ask, what's the most important structure on the earth? Some people might say, ah, it would be found among the great cathedrals and the castles of Europe. Others would say, oh, the pyramids, when you stand before them and you see their majesty, oh, there's nothing like it. The Taj Mahal, the richest of its beauty, its breathtaking. The Hagia Sophia, the Empire State Building, the Eiffel Tower. And various people would say, well, very important buildings. But brethren, for us, the most important building on the planet and throughout all of history is the Temple of God. And we are it. We're to bring glory to Him because this is where He lives. He gets glory to Himself. World without end. Hard to believe it. And yet we must. Well, that's if the word house is what's meant here by Paul. But it can also mean household. It can mean household. Not the structure, but those that live in it. Those in the family. If that's the proper understanding, then the reference is to the fact that we are God's family. And of course, the Scriptures teach that, don't they? Our Father, who art in heaven. What a glorious word. We are born into God's family. And the very language is used in the Scriptures. Born of God. Born again. Born from above. Born by the Spirit. Quickened by God. Quickened together with Christ. We are brought into His family. We're adopted. We're outside His family. Until in His glorious mercy, He comes and cleanses us by the blood of His Holy Son. And makes us sons along with Him. Sons of God. Beloved, now are ye the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when we shall see Him, we shall be like Him. For 
we shall see him as he is. The family of God adopted the very purpose of predestination is the adoption as sons. Brethren, we'd be happy just to be doorkeepers in the house of God, wouldn't we? Lord, I'd just be glad to, to just be a forgiven sinner. You could let me be a, a far distant agent. Just forgiven. That's all I'd be happy to be. But the gospel's so much bigger than that. I'm not just forgiven. I'm adopted. And he loves me not simply as a forgiven sinner, but as his own dear son. He's my father. We're his children. By the blood of Christ. We're sons. We're heirs. Brethren, Paul tells us in Romans that we are joint heirs with Christ. Do you understand what that means? And listen, I've thought about that. And I've prayed about that. And I know I can't get a hold of how big that is. But it means that all that God has created and given to His glorious Son and all of the implications are mine as well as His. He's going to rule and reign over some things. And we're not just going to be there to watch it. We'll be ruling and reigning with Him. Look back over what you were last week. Stop for just a few moments and think about what you were. Do you see that individual reigning for all eternity? With the living Christ? Well, you need to. You mean that fellow that lost his temper? That's right. You mean the one that spoke crossly to his wife when he should have been helping her instead? Exactly right. You mean the one that got bent out of shape with his children when he shouldn't have? Exactly right. You mean the one that had the opportunity to tell the truth and he fibbed just a little bit so he didn't look quite as bad? And maybe worse. Do you understand why it's important for us to show forth to a lost and dying world that we have a God who saves and transforms? Well, we're either the house or the household of God. We're both of them. Perhaps in heaven we'll know exactly which one Paul completely intended. But the fact is, both of them work here. And both of them are true. We're his house, where he lives, we're his dear children, we're his household. And brethren, that will be for all eternity. Well, let me bring this to an end this evening. God's people are the church of the living God. Paul's emphasis on the corporate body of Christ brings us to this consideration. As I said a little earlier, the emphasis for many evangelical circles today is simply one's personal relationship to God. But Paul is saying, I'm talking to you corporately. I'm talking to the body. I'm talking to the house of God. I'm talking to the family of God. There's a gospel. You know it. 
You believe Him. You've been saved because you believe that gospel. God in His mercy sent His Spirit to open your heart and your mind. The day came in your life where you saw your lostness and the most precious thing in the world to you became the thought that a sinner like you could have the cleansing of his sins in the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you believed Him. It was hard for you to believe Him because you saw your rebellion. You saw your nastiness. You saw your filthiness and your corruption and the fact that you deserved to be cast into hell. realized that all your good works couldn't make you good enough. You had one hope. And that's the risen Lord of glory. And you believed Him. And that's where your soul found rest. That's where you found peace. That's where you found your joy. That's where you found rest. And no matter what else happens in your life, You're right with God. And that glorious truth must never be corrupted. You're the pillar and ground of the truth. You are the glorious, the glorious protector and guardian, defender of the faith. You are to keep it pure according to the Word. And you are to speak of its glories by your life. Because God gets glory in His church. Paul's heart was to be there with Timothy. But he said, if I don't make it, if I tarry long, I want you to know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. O brethren, may we strive with all of our hearts and souls and minds to keep the doctrine, to study God's word and to be sure that we know His truth and to preserve it and protect it and to bring Him glory in these vessels of dust. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue 
Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.